0: Visit our Facebook page, TG Geeks Webcast. On Google Plus and YouTube, look for us as Two Gay Geeks. You can tweet at TG Geeks and at the Two Gay Geeks. Or call our feedback line at 469-TG Geeks. That is 469-844-3357. Happy listening. Peace. Cheers. is Joe Hogan. Many of you know me as Epic Gray's in various video games and social media. Welcome to episode 52 of Geektitude, a geek culture podcast that celebrates the inner geek in all of us. Today, I'm really excited to be joined by Annie McVeigh, the director and star of sci-fi feature film Alistair 1918. How are you doing this morning, Annie?
1: I'm doing great, glad to be here.
0: Hopefully it's not too early for you.
1: <laughs> <laughs> no, no, this is fine.
0: Before we get started, I wanted to uh, give my listeners a chance to get to know you a little bit better, so go ahead and tell us a little bit about yourself.
1: Sure. Um, Well, I'm originally from New York, uh, born and raised in Staten Island, and I studied theater at NYU Tisch and then moved out to L.A. in uh, 2007, and I've been directing plays all over L.A. uh, for the last nine years and, um, and then made my first feature film. But I'm uh, in a theater director primarily, and um, yeah, I live just south of Hollywood, and sort of become a real Angelino. I crave things <laughs> like kale now, things I never thought I would I would be interested in. But uh, so yeah, that's a little bit about me.
0: Have, how have you found the the weather transition?
1: I have loved the weather transition. <laughs> I I don't miss seasons the way that a lot of My other friends who have relocated do. I I just love how pleasant it is all the time. I love not having to think about the weather. That's kind of a nice thing just sort of getting up going about your day and never worrying or thinking about it. When it rained last week, I woke up to the sound of the rain and it took me about 60 seconds to figure out what it was.
0: <laughs> it's so true. It's so true. We have we're we're so ill-equipped for it that that people kind of, you know, the the joke that Los Angeles people don't know was this wet stuff falling from the sky, but we're just not we're just not it's, built for it out here.
1: It, it's so true. And my sisters would tease me if I said that. I mean, I, you know, lived in New York for 27 years, but I'm not Kidding! I woke up and thought, "What is that sound? What is that persistent tapping sound?" I, I cannot understand what this sound is. And then it was like rain, you know. <laughs> and then I dug it around my closet and tried to find my umbrella. And um, and then it stopped raining by the time I arrived at work. So there you have it.
0: Yeah, just a little, just a little drizzle to, to wake us up in the morning.
1: <laughs> exactly, and to get the make the mountain views all the more beautiful.
0: Absolutely. Um. So. What are your areas of geekitude? Where do you kind of get excited about geeky things?
1: I am a real word geek. I'm one of those sort of English class and theater geeks. Uh so my my biggest areas of geekitude are most certainly musical theater, mm-hmm. theater, and um I'm also an SAT tutor on the side so I can really geek out about objective versus subjective case and the difference between semicolons and colons and uh, (laughs) things like that. I love grammar, which is pretty nerdy, um, but primarily theater and TV and words.
0: Very cool. Do you have um, certain TV shows that you're watching right now?
1: Oh, yes. Uh, Right now, my biggest obsession of the moment is uh, Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, which a playwright friend of mine turned me on to just a couple of months ago, and I absolutely binge-watched the first season twice, which just gives you an idea of how how geeky I got about this show. It's so smart and uh, hilarious, and it's very specific, and it's different. Um, I've been sort of like a one-woman Yelp trying to spread the word about how great Crazy Ex-Girlfriend is. And, um, and I guess right after Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, transparent season three dropped as they say on Amazon. And I inhaled that season and, and I'm super geeky about going online and reading television reviews and recaps of the shows that I like, like the AV club and vulture do these amazing episode by episode recaps. And I love reading that stuff though. I don't like spoilers. So I'll wait till after I've watched the whole season and then I'll go through and read as many reviews as I can get my hands on about these various TV shows. It's,
0: it's pretty extreme. That's cool, though. I mean, it's it's fun because if you don't have a lot of people to to talk with that kind of stuff about, then it, it is always nice to be able to kind of see what other people are thinking about it and to connect Absolutely. with, yeah, just the, the kind of bigger fandom. I love Crazy Egg Girlfriend. I haven't watched it in a while. We fell behind a little bit in season one. But the big, the big thing for me is I was born and raised in uh, West Covina.
1: You're joking me.
0: No, so, and, and I'm a, a high school English and drama teacher.
1: Oh, my gosh.
0: Yeah, so my students, you know, I, I teach out in Pomona, and my students, when they found out that that was coming out, a lot of them are, are from West Covina, and they're like, oh, Mr. Hogan, we're going to have our own music, our own musical TV show.
1: Oh, my goodness, I cannot believe this. I, like, have half a mind to drive to West Covina, like, today and hang out with you. I can't, the fact that you're from West Covina just got me much more excited than it should have that that (laughs) feels like suddenly you're a celebrity like
0: (laughs) who would have thought you know growing up in West Covina um actually right now my husband and I live out in Palm Springs so I could meet you halfway
1: (laughs) we'll do that that sounds good and we will geek out about theater and musicals and Rachel Bloom's talent
0: absolutely absolutely now are there areas that um people tend to consider geeky that you're not as familiar with or comfortable with uh geeking out about
1: I would say definitely the entire sort of comic book world is a world that I, I just never, I just never, uh, got into. So I'm fascinated by it and I'm well aware from all of my friends who are big time comic book geeks, um, you know, just the, the sheer amount of different types of material you have in, in comic books and, um, just the breadth of it all. So when we had our premiere, uh, of the, of the film Alistair, when we were down in Comic Con, It was so funny. It was my second time at Comic-Con, but walking the convention floor, I mean, I would only recognize about 10% of the stuff I was seeing. Like, I would get really excited when I saw a character I recognized. I'd be like, oh, guys, look, look, it's Iron Man. Yeah, I know that one, you know? (laughs) And then, but a lot of it was me going, oh, my God, look at that guy's costume. And then my friend would say, oh, what is he? And I would say, I have no, I don't know. I don't know what he is, but look at it. It's amazing. It's amazing. So it was kind of hilarious. There were only a couple of true comic book geeks in our little posse uh, that we were down in San Diego with. And the rest of us were kind of like being, you know, just people in a in a different country, kind of looking around and dazzled by everything, but not totally even being able to grasp or appreciate what we were looking at, really.
0: Yeah, I mean, I've I've been going to Comic-Con for decades at this point. and Really? Yeah, because when I started, it was, you know, 60 bucks for the entire weekend. And, yeah. Yeah, and you'd walk in and pick up uh, your tickets for the following year and you were done. It wasn't all of this waiting. It, like, it's, it's changed and it just exploded over the years. But anything anime, I'm lost. Like, I know that's probably an anime cosplay and I have no idea who the character is. So I completely right. understand where you're coming from.
1: Yeah, it's amazing. I mean, it's just the you know it was about about 105 degrees when we were down there this summer oh, i mean not really yeah. that's what it felt like and uh, at one point we went to a little uh, a little place for lunch and i was in the restroom and there was a, a young woman reapplying her makeup uh, in the restroom of this diner and she had blue face paint and a really amazing elaborate costume and so we were, you know, standing next to each other. Wash, I was washing my hands and I said, oh, my gosh, your your makeup is amazing. And she laughed and said, every time I every time I do this character, it either rains or it's a million degrees and my makeup sweats off. And I was just wearing like shorts and a tank top and I was dying and I couldn't I was so honestly kind of moved and impressed by the level of commitment that I saw among all these people down there standing in lines wearing these great costumes with their face paint and the idea of somebody reapplying their paint in the middle of the day and the sweltering heat just so they could sort of faithfully represent this character and, and really look, you know, look the part and look great with, it just blew me away and people standing on lines like that for, you know, all day long and sleeping overnight. I, I love that stuff. Um, you know, like I said, our, our sort of group down there, were not, you know, well-versed in all of the, the comic book fandom, but, and sometimes, you know, someone would say, oh my goodness, could you imagine waiting all that time? And I said, I think it's awesome. I just think it's so, it always interests me the way that people choose to spend their time, the things that people sort of give their love and their energy to. And I, I'm just impressed by anyone that will sleep overnight in order to, you know, go and be at, whether it's a concert or a play or, you know, a panel, um, of the suicide squad, whatever it is, I just, it, 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 it impresses me that level of commitment and love, I guess.
0: Yeah. I think, I think it really is about being around people and being, um, a, around people that appreciate something as much and as dedicatedly as you do, you know, something that yeah. makes you just, you're, you're just, you can connect with those people on something that's, that's special to you and it's special to them and now instant connection. I think that's why I love con culture so much. It's so cool to be able to go to a place where everybody's just passionately diving into whatever they love.
1: Absolutely. you know one neat thing when we were at Comic-Con I had some uh, some friends who were also down there promoting other projects and I am friends with um, these two women who have a podcast called We Should Have a Podcast and uh, my two friends, Courtney Perroso and uh, Corey Padell. And I went to hang out with them one day when they were wrapping up, you know, their live podcast on the convention floor. And Corey was so cool. She is also sort of, she's not, she's never been into comic books, but, you know, she wanted to sort of get a starter kit. So she had been given some titles that people thought she would like. And we set off on this amazing sort of, uh, scavenger hunt. You know, to find. Um, the, she heard that there were comic books of Saved by the Bell and Punky Brewster, and we found that that booth. And actually, Andre the Giant's daughter was also there, and there's a there's a comic book based on Andre the Giant, and um, she doesn't draw the book, but I think she's responsible for the story. And we hung out with them, and then they gave Corey another recommendation and then we, you know, set off along on this terrific sort of going around in circles on the convention floor, looking for one booth for a comic book that it was about two women uh, who are best friends. And one of them is in love with the other. And we met the author and his books were so beautiful and amazing. And he, he essentially only writes, um, female protagonist, all of the lead characters in all of his books are women, which I just found really interesting. And anyway, Corey ended up leaving, you know, she spent some money and ended up leaving with this sort of fantastic, you know, sort of comic book starter kit. And and I love that too. People who know that they are not, you know, indoctrinated yet into a particular fandom culture or geek culture, but they want to get in. So they ask for recommendations and kind of try to find their own their own way in there.
0: Yeah, and that's great that that she's finding stuff that uh, she likes, because I I think a lot of people just think, oh, comic books. So you're talking Superman and Captain America and Batman and Spider-Man. And it's so much bigger than that now.
1: Yeah, well, that was exactly it. I mean, when we finally did find this guy, and that was cool, too, that the actual author was there. And I'm sorry, I wish I knew the name. It's something like It's something like the dangerously true, the dangerous story of two girls. I don't know. I was trying to Google it just before we got on the phone, and I kind of ran out of time. But uh, the author was there, and it was amazing to meet him. His books were gorgeous, and some of them were really thick. Um, They looked more like novels than, like, comic books. The artwork obviously was amazing, but I do have a sort of uh, predilection for realism whenever I read plays I, I tend to gravitate more towards realistic uh s- realistic you know the real the genre of realism as opposed to absurdism etc mm-hmm. or anything kind of Brechtian I, I I have a real thing for realism and the books that this guy has I mean they they just looked so I was so surprised by how contemporary and how sort of yeah not the kind of um, you know, Captain America, it was just completely different from that. And it was, and I, you know, got to see firsthand sort of the scope of what the comic book world really is.
0: Yeah. Now, do you have a a favorite fandom, you know, a, a movie series or a TV series that you just find yourself going back to time and time again?
1: That's a great question. I mean, my, my most extreme fandom was probably the musical Rent which mm-hmm. came out at just the perfect time for, you know, I was 16 years old when uh, when rent transferred to Broadway, and it was during the time where you could line up and get tickets as opposed to go there and put your name in the lottery and try to win tickets. It used to be a first-come, 1st first serve. They reserved the first two rows for people that would, you know, wait online. Mm-hmm. And it became this crazy scene where people would line up the night before And sleep overnight on 41st Street and then get the tickets and then you would go to like the Marriott Marquis and like use the restrooms there and try to spruce up and then go see the show. So I lived in Staten Island and my friends and I, I mean, I've seen the entire musical uh, from the front row or the second row probably nine or ten times, but we used to also just go in and second act the show uh, just on a Friday night, we would take the ferry into the city and take the subway up to 42nd Street. We would wait uh, next, to the, next to the theater and we would put our ears next to the seams, you know, between uh, the panels on the Nederlander Theater and be able to determine exactly what moment they were in the first act. Then you'd wait for intermission and look for some, you know, old people that looked horrified by what they'd seen or people with <laughs> small children that were rushing out of there and say, excuse me are you guys leaving? Uh, do you mind if we have your tickets? So I've seen the second act of Rent like over 40 times. Oh, wow. uh, and, you know, it's, uh, it's just one of those things that's really tied up for me with nostalgia and how new it felt, you know, at the time being a, a total theater geek. And also at a time where I was kind of, I don't know, figuring out my own, you know, realizing that I was gay and all sorts of things like that. It was kind of this just incredible uh, it was an incredible moment and the energy of the cast not to mention obviously the backstory of you know the the tragedy of Jonathan Larson dying just before you know their first preview at New York Theatre Workshop there was so much so much surrounding this play and to see it in the front row I mean it was mind-blowing the first time I saw it I lost my wallet somehow uh, traveling back to Staten Island because I think I was in such a daze I don't think I spoke for like Three or four hours after I saw it the first time, it blew my mind in a way that had never happened like that up until that point. So I know that that's kind of an old school, an old school geeky thing to go back to. I would say, you know, just last night I started watching Christopher Guest's new show on Netflix, Mascots.
0: Uh And
1: I was thinking about, you know, when we, my, my theater friends and I discovered Waiting for Guffman and how obsessed we were. And actually, in Mascots, uh, Christopher Guest's character from Guffman, Corky St. Clair, is in it. And I was elated. I almost fell off my couch. I got so excited to see that character show up. Um, so those are two things. I mean, I, you know, I've watched the entire, the entire series of The Office, the American one, Mm -hmm. um, like more than three times. So, but that's kind of just like a, Kind of like a blanket at the end of the night, you know, just to put on an episode of The Office and kind of shut it down. And but it's amazing that it still makes me laugh out loud. Um, But I would say that theater, theater geekiness, has always been the kind of place where I find myself the most at home. Theater and plays and. gonna say to a certain extent books but really really it comes down to plays and theater Mm -hmm. i just got to see a view from the bridge um downtown the production by ivo van hove and oh my gosh my girlfriend and i we chatted for an hour afterwards and talked about all of the choices he made and and what was arthur miller's real intention with this speech and and that to me is like a perfect night to go and see a live performance and then geek out over it and talk about it and pick it apart and try to understand it and hear what other smart people think about it. I just love doing that.
0: Yeah, I, I'm, I'm right there with you. And it's funny because I, I was also going through kind of late high school, early college when Rent got big. And, uh, and I remember, you know, when you're doing theater, I, everybody wanted to do um, Take Me For What I Am. Like everybody. Yes. Like it was that and, and seasons of love. You couldn't see a review, you couldn't see a high school talent show, you couldn't see like it was everywhere. And I yes. think it just kinda it's it's kind of what, what's going on with Hamilton right now Absolutely. was very much rent when we were younger. And uh every year I take my students to a, a theater competition in Fullerton and uh the Fullerton College students put on usually a musical and a couple, the, the, like the first or second year we went, they did rent. And, oh, my gosh. Oh, the kids the kids had never seen anything like it. And they were, like, you know, they, they were mooned. <laughs> they were, there was language, you yeah. know. And, and they just kind of looking over at me like, is this okay? It's like, oh it's my theater, God. you're fine. <laughs> you will survive this.
1: How awesome is that, that you get to be the one to take, I mean, that's an experience that they'll never forget. I mean, you know even if most of them don't go on to do theater that that experience is something that will live vividly in their minds i that must be so amazing to get to be sort of the ambassador you know you know and bring people into this world and give them an experience or be present while they're having an experience that you know is going to really stay with them and open their minds i'm sure they freaked out over it
0: oh yeah well i mean it's fun because uh, th- this past year, I just had a, a senior graduate who, for, for three years, was um, my, my stage manager. And she was by far the best stage manager I've had. In, in some cases, I would even say when I had my own theater company, she was one of the best uh, you know, compared to, to them. And she, uh, as a senior, was doing her senior project on stage management. So she got to work on a college production of Avenue Q. And she kind of comes over to me and she goes, so do you think you could take the class to go see Avenue Q? And I said, that's absolutely not appropriate for high schoolers. So yes, of course, I'm going to take them to see Avenue Q.
1: I love it.
0: And so I, I told the kids beforehand, I was like. You know, if anything, um, if you are, if you think you are going to be offended by something in this show, let me know now, and we will let you hang out here. But if anybody asks, I had no idea what this show was about.
1: Oh my god, Joe, that's awesome, and I they loved it, yeah. They
0: absolutely loved it. They just again, they they get that little that it's that it's that playful excitement of I'm doing something naughty that I shouldn't yep. be doing, and it's completely okay.
1: Definitely. I loved Avenue Q and I, you know, it was, that was a kind of cool one because my old boss um I was a TA at NYU for a little while after I graduated. And my boss, uh, Mary B. Robinson, she was the head of the the directing program at Playwrights Horizons. She's a Tony voter. So she got, you know, tickets to all of the shows and they get those Tony seats, which are basically fifth row center orchestra and every year she would take me as like a gift. She would take me to one player musical and her husband really was not into musicals. So she took me to see Avenue Q. And again, it was like, I was just out of college. And what do you do with a, you know, with a the PA in and, English? But it was kind of like watching this thing and going, oh my God, this is like speaking to my, you know, this is like watching my life right now. I... Absolutely loved that show. I loved the staging of it. At the time, I mean, it did really feel very new. I mean, since then, of course, there have been some, you know, it has spawned like not imitators necessarily, but but, you know, it it's now it doesn't feel quite as new, which it makes sense because it's, you know, 15 years old or whatever. But I loved watching Avenue Q. I've only seen it once since um in like a regional theater production, but yeah, that' That show. And puppets. I love puppets. Actually, I direct a long running uh, play called fairy Tale Theatre 18 and over. And it is this insane uh, show that is a collection of original fairy tales with morals for adults told with puppets and people dressed as animals. For example the tale of the bipolar bear and the codependent Eskimo. <laughs> and it is uh, the brainchild of Michael Feldman, who's a friend of mine from NYU. He's an absolute genius, but we've been uh, doing this show at theaters all around Hollywood um, since I guess 2010. Then we got invited to the Edinburgh Fringe Festival, not this past summer, but the summer before. And we did a show uh, every single night for a month. They had two off nights and it was incredible. That, that experience was just amazing. Uh, for all of the theater geeks out there, if you can get a ticket to Edinburgh in, in August, go to the Fringe. It is one of the most joyous, exciting, um, sort of vital scenes I've ever been around. And the city, the city is so beautiful. It, does, it looks like a storybook. We were just losing our minds every, you know, for the first week, we kept on pinching ourselves and going, it doesn't look real right. it looks like we're like in harry potter right now what is going on you know there's a castle up the street and we were just losing our minds about it but uh, uh where did i get the, oh yes puppets. so anyway we've got um some really talented puppeteers and actors and fairy tales and i've learned a little bit of puppetry about you know making the puppet breathe and uh it's kind of like the play fairy tales is kind of like south park meets seinfeld but with puppets it's out there.
0: Sounds amazing. That sounds amazing, and I have wanted to go to Edinburgh uh, Fringe Festival since my roommate in college uh, went with USC uh, back back when we were in college. And every like I've I've explained to my husband that this is something that we must do before we oh, die.
1: Yes. yes, it certainly is. It oh, absolutely. Is.
0: He said it was one of the best experiences of his entire life.
1: It was unforgettable. This year, uh, our whole fairy tale group, everyone was started texting each other, you know, around August saying, You guys, do you remember this time last year? Because it was this magical experience. And the fact that we got to be there for a month was, um, it felt like a dream. I mean, while we were there, there were, there were times that it just felt like we were dreaming and like, How did we get this lucky? Mm-hmm. Um, a producer from London, Wonderful producer uh, Lindsay had come to see Fairy Tales while in LA, and she loved it so much. And she's taken other shows to Edinburgh, so she she's the one who brought us to Edinburgh, found our venue, etc. I I was overwhelmed by the sheer amount of performances that were, you know, that you could go and see. And it was funny because none of us had ever been to to Edinburgh, so every day it would be like, okay, I want to see like seven shows but then it would be a beautiful day and you would also just kind of want to explore the city. So it Mm -hmm. was tricky. It was like the city was kind of competing with the shows, you know, for, for our attention. And, um, so I don't think that all of us saw as many performances as we, you know, if we went back, we'd see more stuff, but that city is just so incredible. We kind of had to explore and yeah, you, you got to go Joe. It's, uh, it's the best.
0: That sounds awesome. That sounds awesome. All right. Um, what what things are you working on right now? I know we're going to talk about Alistair uh, 1918 in a little bit, but um, what what other stuff do you have in the works?
1: Well, right now I'm about to start directing a new play um, called Sisters 3 by a really talented, really amazing playwright named Jamie Brandley, who I'm a big fan of. And um, I love this play. Actually... When I read it, it, I got more excited about this play than I have about anything I've read in a while. It was one of those, my heart was pounding. When I got to the last page of the play and finished it, I flipped it over and started it again. Um, I just, I just fell in love with this play. It was kind of love at first sight. It's, uh, there are three women in the play and it is loosely inspired by the Bronte sisters, even though the play is set in the present. Mm-hmm. But the characters' names are Charlotte, Anne, and EJ. And we just finished casting. It took us a little while to cast one of the roles. And we have our first read-through, th- read-through this Monday. Uh, so this weekend is all about kind of getting ready for that. And um, th- we'll have uh, performances in mid-December at Versus Theater, which is in Hollywood, Um And I can't wait to get started. This is just my kind of play. I just can't wait to roll up my sleeves and get in there with these great actresses. It's hilarious. It is, it's one of these great things that feels like it could only be a play. You know, Mm -hmm. sometimes you read stuff and I mean, this, it's just from the, from the moment it begins, it's like event, event, event. And she, uh, Jamie does such a marvelous job of like any, any, Thing that she sets up any element, whether it's a set element or a prop that's really important, it has its own journey. It's like there are no loose threads, you know anything that was set up in the beginning has a sort of evolution and something happens to it it's she's just it's one of those um really compact one act plays where the events just just kind of all come directly out of what happened before. And there's no wasted words. There's no, I mean, there's really no fat on this, on this play. It's so lean and it's so just kind of ready to rock. And, um and it has excited me to know, and I can't wait to get in there with these actresses starting on Monday. And it's neat because it's uh, been an excuse to do some research on the Bronte family. And it's been amazing and kind of a little bit depressing, actually reading all about the Bronte family. It's just, you know, it breaks your heart. Like there were six kids and, you know, the two older girls died like when they were nine and seven, you know, from, I'm pretty sure it was tuberculosis and, um, you know, and Charlotte was, you know, alive when her two older sisters died. And then, I mean, they, none of them lived past like, uh, 31, except for the dad, the dad lived into, into, uh, his old age, but, um, I don't know. You know, their genius and their kind of encouragement of one another, um, it's been very cool to to start researching that family. And it just makes you think how lucky we all were to be born when we were born. I mean, the idea everyone dying at like seven to nine years old and people having to bury their kids and it's a... Sorry, Joe, I kind of took it to a dark place. but the <laughs> Well,
0: you started talking about the Bronte sisters, it's going to go dark. Pretty much, yeah. The, the
1: brother, he's so interesting. Patrick or Branwell, um, which he's also called. I mean, this poor young man, he he was like addicted to alcohol and laudanum, and he died young as well. And the sisters... It's, it's very interesting the extent to which Anne seemed to be his primary caretaker. And she's got this novel where she kind of really delves into the difficulties of living with someone um, who is an addict and feels like I haven't read the novel, but I mean even the idea that she was writing about that at the time was sort of sort of scandalous and a lot of people found that a, a topic that was not befitting for a woman, you know, mm-hmm. um, but yeah, this family is, it's fascinating. And I, I kind of wonder about that brother and like what he thought about, I wonder, you know, to what extent he realized that all of his sisters were like geniuses and he, you know, it sounds like he was, he was a painter and stuff. And, uh, you know, I think very modestly successful. And then one of the sisters Anne, got a job as a governess <laughs> taking care of these kids. And then he came on to tutor the kids in painting, ended up having an affair with the, what the mom, you know, at the house. And then. Uh, he got fired, and you know, um, he sounds like quite a guy. But, but I digress.
0: That's always fun. Like I, I know the the feeling of diving down the, especially now that we have the internet, diving diving down the research wormhole <laughs> that, that sucks you into the, you know, just the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. So that's awesome. Yeah,
1: that's and cool. then there's one other thing. Uh, well, fairy tales. We just did a really cool performance at this incredible venue. It's this like invite only venue called Brookledge and they do a lot of magic shows and exclusive sort of cabaret performances that are like invite only it's it, there's a theater in this basically mansion it's a really cool venue so we did that the other night but we're gearing up to take fairy tales to New York hopefully in January oh, wow. um, and we also have been developing fairy tales as a web series uh, and that's getting closer and closer to finally, you know, shooting our, our proof of concept and then finding a, a, you know, the right digital platform. But so fairy tales, all of these seeds that we've been planting for a long time are finally kind of beginning to sprout. And, uh, Michael also, Michael Feldman has also written a musical version of fairy tales, that we're doing this spring, and I can't wait. I mean, that's going to be, it'll be the first musical I've ever directed, and it's genius, it's very ambitious. Um, it's sort of taking this idea to the next level, so.
0: But so, you have so many things going on, that's so exciting. Thanks. Awesome. Well, thank you for sharing all that with us. Um, I think we're going to move on to the different things that we did to keep it geeky this week. Great. Um, i I have uh you know my listeners know I have like a about an hour and a half one way commute to to work every day because i I work in Pomona but I live in palm springs and uh, and so it's great because I get a chance to listen to all of these wonderful podcasts but over the summer I fall. Drastically behind <laughs> because I don't have the <laughs> daily commute, and so finally this week I finally caught up so that I'm listening to the things that came out this past week, and so that was kind of nice to kind of finally feel that um, that I was I was listening to news and things that were relevant to that week's topics as opposed to listening to them from you know two or three weeks back. Right. So so that was definitely nice. Unfortunately, that that the reason why I was able to finally catch up was because I had some, like there was a couple nights that it took me two and a half hours to get home.
1: Oh my gosh.
0: Oh yeah. I've got, I've got a a, a crazy commute.
1: So, Oh, that sounds intense.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's fine. Like the, the hour and a half, not so bad. Hour and 45, you start to get a little antsy. Anything over that, it's like, Oh my God, get me out of the car.
1: Oh yeah. They call that extreme commuting.
0: Oh, it is definitely extreme commuting. (laughs) But, um, you know, and then you come home, and it's almost time to have dinner and kind of settle down for the evening. And so I was like, I need to find something to just decompress for a half an hour. And I don't know if you play video games at all, but there is a game called Skyrim. It's this sandbox RPG where you know you can basically go anywhere you want in the world, uh, and there's a mod for it that allows you to kind of just randomly start somewhere in the world instead of going through the whole intro experience and following the story from the beginning. It just kind of drops your character somewhere. And huh. so, yeah, so this this week, anytime I had like a half an hour or so, I would just go, oh, okay. I'd jump into the game, see where it dropped me, play, you know, often die a couple times because I was in an area I probably shouldn't have been in. And, <laughs> uh, and it was great because it just kind of gave me a, a little... Thing to explore for a half an hour. I wasn't going to be in the middle of some big intensive story that I didn't want to to get out of or interrupt. I just kind of ran in, you know, fought a few things and then you know get ready to to start working on dinner. So it really really worked out. It was it was kind of a nice way to um, decompress after the long drive.
1: So what do you do in the game? Like what's the object of the game? Because it sounds like one of those games I would love to watch someone play, where like the scenery is like amazing and. Uh, and the cinematography is incredible. But what what are you trying to do, like in the game? Yeah, well, it's it's
0: set in in a, a fictional world. That's it's this is like the third or fourth generation of this game. You know, the story has been going on for years. It's the Oblivion series, and uh, and so you're you you start off as you do in most of the the series as a, a prisoner, and you've been. Scooped up by whatever army has been kind of taking over is in the area, and before they can execute you, their keep is destroyed by a dragon and so then you have to kind of escape and find you know the the story is kind of trying to to unite the two factions while discovering that you're kind of connected to these dragons in a way huh. and yeah it's it but it it really is the the nice thing about anything by uh by this company I' never pronounce it right it's Bethesma I believe it's called. Um, is it's just this open world where you can do the main storyline or you can just wander around and that's cool. Yeah, and it's, um, you know, there's treasure to find, but you don't have, you know, you're not reliant on it. You can go anywhere you want and it, the, the whole world levels up with you. So, you know, you that's why they can drop you in these random places and everything's your level because. Um, that's just the way the world works and it really is beautiful and you can add enhancements okay. through mods and it's a great game.
1: When is it set, Joe? Like what time period? Well,
0: it's an, it's, it's, it's fantasy. So it's set in kind of like the Norse type, you know, the, they oh. have a faction that's very Norse related. So it's keeps and castles and nice. Yeah. Yeah. It's a lot of fun. And then since I have a fellow theater geek on, I can talk a little bit about what my kids are doing right now, because that's what we're doing. I mentioned a couple episodes ago that we, we didn't have any boys for our musical theater uh, entry for our festival this year. And no, boys? No, we we, we since I've been, I've been doing the drama there for about eight years, and you get boys that are willing to act, but none that are willing to sing.
1: Gotcha, yes.
0: Yeah, so <laughs> so I find I I explained on a previous episode that I I walked in one day and I was like my, they they wanted to do I let the seniors pick whatever entry they want to do and they wanted to do Twenty One Guns from American Idiot. Okay. So that's intensive, you know, it's a hard song and it needs you know a good gender balance. So I I went into my sophomore English classes and I said to the boys, um, all right, boys, how many of you can sing? No response. All right. I didn't ask how many want to sing. I just asked how many could sing. No response. I said, all right, you're going to make me play dirty. Ladies, who in here can sing? And the girls were real quick to give up the boy. <laughs> oh, he's got oh, a great voice. Goodness. Oh, he sings in the car all the time. And so we ended up with, at the end of the day, 12 boys in the show. And they're now very excited that they've been encouraged to do this. And, and so um I walk in. I, I, I've i gotten my drama club to the point where I Kind of just manage and the kids do a lot of the work on their own. So the seniors are the ones who are directing and musical directing and everything with these kids. And I walk in at lunch when they were rehearsing their song with the chorus and the, the, one of my seniors, Ashley had, had taught them the, a three part harmony. And just, you know, it was just a phrase of the song. They haven't gotten through the whole thing yet, but she was like, I walked in and she's jumping up and down. She goes, Mr. Hogan, you have to listen to this. It's amazing. And they did such a good job. And so this isn't until March, so they've got plenty of time to perfect it, but it's so exciting to see them getting just, just excited about what they're able to do. And, and it makes it even better because they're doing it on their own. I'm not sitting there. I'm not the driving force behind it. They are. And so that's always a really good feeling.
1: That's pretty amazing. Um, Like on every level. So you've been doing it for eight years. So at what point did you sort of get to kind of take a step back and let them begin to, you know, take on larger roles of being musical directors, et cetera? Well, it's been, it's been
0: a, a kind of gradual process. It's kind of depends on what what seniors I have, because sometimes you'll have a lot of acting seniors that are, are really big into to the performance base, and so you let them kind of direct a show on their own or, um, you know, like little side projects that they want to do or a scene for for a festival. And then there are years where I don't have as many seniors who are acting-focused, and I have more production-focused seniors, and so that's when I can kind of step back and let them create the... Um, you know, the sets and the props and the costumes all on their own, and I can focus on the acting. And I would say that it was about two or three years ago that the, the switch where both of them had established enough of a legacy where they weren't comfortable graduating unless they had somebody to kind of fill their shoes. Whoa. Yeah, and so they've created this culture at the school and in the drama program of making sure that there's always somebody to pass on the information to, and they're getting younger and younger that they're passing on. So now they grab freshmen up because freshmen are like, okay, we're going to make you kind of do the grudge work. Right now, so th- and, and you can see them doing this. It's not like, well, I don't want to do it. Let the freshmen do it. It's like, all right, which ones are actually doing things? Which ones are actually self-starters? All right, those are the ones. We're going to put you on sound, so you start listening to the sound guy, and he's going to teach you some sound, and you go over and start learning stuff from the uh, lighting person, and and it's all them. Like, all I have to do is come in and do a little bit of directing for our fall show and, and meet with them to kind of check in on what they're doing, and, and they do it all by themselves.
1: Joe that's amazing. You know, when I, the theater, you know, when I was in high school, I was only um acting, you know, acting in the the school musical. There were no opportunities. The school that I went to didn't have any kind of directing program and you, you know, you couldn't do lighting design or sound design or anything. You just be in the play. And I loved just being in the plays. But when I got to college, I was sort of blown away by some of my classmates who had come out of these high school theater programs and had already had opportunities to direct opportunities to design a set. I, it you know i just think that it sounds like you've developed an a really really fantastic program there and that these people are going to be going into conservatories with so many skills and already like a pretty solid you know amount of practical application i love that you know because it's like in my freshman year that's when all of the light bulbs began to go off for a lot of us you know everyone goes in there as an actor And then you're like, oh, my God, you see people be like, I really love costume design. That's what I want to do. Or, oh, Mm -hmm. I'm really good at sound design. That's actually my area of expertise for me taking directing, you know, taking directing one as a freshman was a real light bulb moment. And I would have had it sooner if there had been opportunities to direct in high school. Um, So I just I just got to give you kudos. It sounds like you've really created quite a powerhouse program there.
0: Well, it's fun, and I mean, uh, they, they, we get very frustrated The kids get very frustrated when we go to competitions because it tends to be the same schools that win all the time, and and we don't necessarily make it to finals and anything. And and then they'll go to the, like the musical theater finals, and they'll see what we've produced, and they'll see what these you know performing arts schools have produced, and they'll be like, oh, okay, I see the difference. I see where you know the level, and and they realize that at that school, that school has. A teacher who does costumes, a teacher who does the choreography, a teacher who does the musical direction, you know, there's just me. <laughs> We're a very wow. small school. And so it's kind of like I, my, my necessity for doing this was I can't do it all myself. And if I don't start right. delegating, I'm, I'm going to lose it. <laughs> I'm going to lose yes. my mind. And so, um, so every year I think they get a little bit, you know, that, that competitive, um, nature kind of like we want to do better and even if we don't make it to finals this year we want to walk out of there going this is the best show we've ever done every time they come out of there and and i think that that's really what i'm trying to encourage them to do is is not not compare themselves to the other people that are are um winning all the awards and everything compare themselves to 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 themselves and what they've done you know and to look at the progress that they've made so it's 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 really cool. I'm I'm having a great time with drama this year. It's <laughs> sometimes it's the reason to go to school. <laughs> I know we felt that a lot when we were kids, I'm sure, but you know, it, it applies to teachers too. Sometimes I would much rather teach a, a drama class than an English class.
1: Absolutely. Well, I'm just sitting here like beaming at what you just said. It just sounds like you are like a natural educator and I just love this idea of of empowering these kids to do their very best and have that be, that that's the thing, it's not about the result, I do the same thing when I tutor, I just really try to inspire the kids to just work their hardest, and try to remind them that at the end of the day, if they've done their best, and taken the program seriously, that whatever score, whatever score comes back, that they'll have that peace of mind of knowing that they, that they tried their hardest, and did their best, I think that that's, Something that really can't be overestimated, the peace of mind that comes with pushing yourself. Because, you know, there are some times that uh, s- some students can fall into the sort of the trap of the smart kid. You know, it's like if they phone it in, they'll still get a 90. So what's the point of pushing themselves? But right. it's great to that feeling when you really push yourself and the satisfaction that comes from it is um, it's long lasting So it sounds like you're really, I don't know, just teaching these kids, not kids, you know, these young, these young men and women, all of the right things and to put the priorities where the priorities are. Because, yeah, at the end of the day, if it's all about beating some powerhouse school that's super well funded, that they're never going to. I mean, if that's the goal, then they'll inevitably be disappointed. It's got to be like the work itself is the thing, you know, can compete with yourself, compete with how you did last year. And if that's the barometer, then then you'll feel that success. It's you. You've got to let me know when your uh, when your competitions are coming up. If I can, I'd really like to go see them. By the way, what is your fall musical this year or your fall play this year? Um, we're doing a,
0: a play called Stage Fright or uh, Laugh Until or Laugh. I thought I'd die. It's by Todd, Todd McGinnis, and it is a horror stage play. Really? Um, yes, and it's the first time I've ever done this kind of, um, material. It's, <laughs> it's one of those things where I just kind of don't let the principal know everything I'm doing and right. hope, uh, ask for forgiveness later, uh, you know, and then, then, you know, kind of like black out any violent parts so that they, you know, they're not going to be seen on stage. But it's, um, four, uh, scenes, you know, two, two scenes per act, and each scene takes place in, this theater in different time periods over the course of this theater's life. And it revolves around this Ouija board, which was the first thing that, uh, that got me into trouble is that this, I, I pre-warned the students because I have a, a very religious, you know, I do have a contingent of students that are very religious. And I was like, you know, there is a Ouija board in this. So if, that it goes against your religious beliefs, make sure or your parents' religious beliefs I, I'm warning you ahead of time. this is extracurricular, so you know if if you don't like it, that's fine it's not going to affect anybody's grade, but oh my God, first day call this is inappropriate you're going to be summoning demons, this is terrible it's like it's it's put out by you know Milton Bradley, I think we'll oh be my okay. goodness, <laughs> I think we'll be okay, but um they're excited because it's scary and it's um it's intense and i've got some students who are like i'm i'm kind of nervous about doing this role because you know this this character is not a good not a nice person and and so it's it's kind of stretching their boundaries it's stretching the school's boundaries um we've decided instead of doing it in a regular the regular stage setup with the audience looking at the proscenium stage we've moved the audience onto the stage with them and kind of created our own little black box.
1: Oh my God, I love it.
0: Yeah, because it's got to be, it's scary. So it's got to be intimate. It's got to be close. And it's very storytelling oriented. So it's new for the kids because the kids are a lot lot of, there's a lot of dialogue and and a lot of um, long sweeping storytelling monologues. And so it's kind of teaching them to, to engage the audience in a different way than they do when they're, you know, behind the fourth wall.
1: That sounds amazing. It also sounds like it's you're sort of you've got your finger on the pulse of like a new trend. I mean, um, I feel like you know I've been reading about both sci-fi plays and suspense plays. They're kind of right now there are a lot of plays that are being written and being produced that are moving that are of that genre, which is a genre I've never directed a, a play that's a suspense play or a horror play. But it sounds like it's something that's you know, a lot of our, our you know, kind of cool, uh, best young playwrights right now are kind of working in that world and, you know, producing plays in different genres that you wouldn't always associate with, you know, plays, especially with like a high school play. And isn't there a Ouija, a Ouija board movie that's coming out? I know I've seen a billboard recently with a Ouija board on it.
0: There is. And I didn't know about it until after I picked the show for the year. And I was like, well, this is topical. <laughs> Holy Good job. You got your
1: finger on the pulse.
0: Yeah, I I was it's going to be a fun experience. The the kids are are really getting into it. We because we've moved it onto the stage, we have limited seats, so that's even starting to create a buzz at the school that once we release the seats for the students to to buy, they're going to, you know, they're going to be jumping on it because there's only going to be, you know, a limited number. So, you know, we're we're, we're looking forward to it. It's it's a a totally different direction than we've ever gone but I try and give them something a little bit different to do every year so that they get as much exposure to different things as possible
1: I'll say I mean that's so cool it's like you know nothing you know it's like instead of doing bye bye birdie for like the 15th time you know <laughs> exactly. it's like doing this really cool like new horror play and and putting I love the idea that you're that you're changing up the audience configuration because I think that for students you know it's like for people like you and me, we've we've seen that a million times. So now it's like we take for granted the fact that you can, you know, use the theater architecture and, you know, change the configuration of the audience in order to to change the audience's experience. But mm-hmm. that very idea is like a radical idea to someone who's never been exposed to it before. If you've only seen shows sitting in the audience looking at the proscenium, The idea that you could reject that and do something else and create a completely different effect, that's that's like a radical idea. So I love, again, that your students will be coming out of high school already having worked with, you know, different audience configurations and knowing that that's another tool in their toolbox, you know, when approaching a play.
0: Yeah, well, and I'm sure that, that you're, if you're anything like me, anytime you walk into any any building, any any park, any place where there's some sort of flat surface around, your brain automatically goes to, how
1: could this be used as a performance space? That's exactly <laughs> what I do all the time. Sometimes I go to people's houses and go, oh my God, look at the size of this backyard. You could You could do a, huh, you could do a play here. You could put the audience there. Actually, you could also put them there, you know, and I just start kind of figuring out what you could do and where might you put the lights and yeah i think that we always we always do that
0: yeah it's a real problem that that theater you know the, the i think the two things that that theater people can can agree on is the actor's nightmare and <laughs> and and finding your performance space <laughs> those are those are i think things that are universal to us
1: absolutely and uh, you know it's fun like also when when i was at school, when i was in college um we we were always Sort of short on rehearsal space, uh, even though NYU Tisch is a is a really incredible school with this amazing reputation, and it's you know the resources of the, the teachers and everything are incredible. But it would it would be hilarious. Like you would fill out this form, which was essentially your wish list of rehearsal times that you wanted to rehearse your third year show or your fourth year show, and then they would look through all of them and. They had to divide these very limited number of rehearsal rooms among the many, many students who were putting in these requests. So you would, you know, put it in for like, you know, 16 hours or 18 hours of rehearsal and get back, you know, a thing that said, okay, you have Wednesday night from 10 to midnight in such and such space. And the rest of the time, if you didn't have a proper rehearsal space, you would just, you know, you would find other places to rehearse. So we would be I always joke about I was directing a scene from Othello a, a really intense scene at the end of the play with Othello and desdemona it 's the scene where he kills her, mm-hmm. and we 're rehearsing in this like like near an elevator bank in the film you know in the film school next to vending <laughs> machines and you know my actors are are there pouring their hearts out and you 've got people coming with their change and putting their change in the vending machines and getting a seven up and or we would rehearse in Washington Square Park. And I got to say, I got to hand it to all of the actors who don't care at all where they are or who can see them. They will give their all and they, they don't have any, any inkling of embarrassment at all. Like if I was rehearsing in Washington Square Park, I would be kind of Ugh, just, like, aware of people watching us and stuff. I guess right. at, that, at that age, I still had a certain level of self-consciousness. I'd be like, why can't we be in, like, a room with a door closed? And, you know,
0: anyway. Yeah, no, I I, I completely understand where you're coming from. I've, I've definitely had those experiences where it's like, all right, well, the living room it is tonight, because <laughs> our door room's going to have to have to be the rehearsal space today.
1: Absolutely. Actually, I directed a reading of a, of a new play, Over the summer, and we, we did it at Stella Adler uh, School of Acting, which is a really great venue, actually. And they've got multiple, uh, multiple theaters or multiple rooms within their complex. But when we were there to do our final run through, there was a show in progress with students happening in the, in the studio room right next to us. So we were asked, you know, by the staff to really be incredibly quiet and, what can I say? I mean, so here we are doing a run through of this comedy, this backstage comedy, and essentially we had to whisper. Uh-huh. And the, the hilariousness of watching a group of, you know, adult actors, professional actors doing a whisper through, it was it was preposterous. It was one <laughs> of the... But, you know, you want to... You just want to be really um, thoughtful about the other people who are performing. I mean, we all know what that's like. Right. And I I'm... Gosh, you would not want to sit next to me in an audience because I'm like the hall monitor. You know, if someone turns on their phone, if someone is whispering or talking, I will I will bore holes through their head with my eyes. I mean, I'm always the one looking like, are you serious? Like, Psh, be quiet. You know, they're, they're <laughs> burning their hearts out. How dare you? I'm the person who, if I have to sneeze, I will stifle that sneeze. I will, I will hold that cough. I'll do anything I can to not disrupt you know the flow of the actors in these little intimate theaters.
0: Yeah, absolutely right there with you. Now, what did what have you been up to this week? Anything fun and geeky?
1: Let me think. This week what has been fun and geeky? Um, well, last night I watched the season 2 premiere of Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, which I it's the first time I've watched something live on television, you know, in a really long time, like mm-hmm. when it aired, you know, with commercials. So that's how excited I was about that show coming back on. I did some of my Bronte research and learned about, you know, the, the very short life cycles of all of <laughs> Um We did fairy tales at this really cool venue and there were magicians there and uh, vaudeville, you know, performers and singers. And that was pretty awesome. And, um, and I have to say that this week, my, my big obsession has been, has been the, the campaign, but we've, probably don't even want to go there everyone's (laughs) very sick of hearing about that but i've been refreshing politico daily beast salon.com i i have been a little bit uh a lot obsessed with with all of the news coming out you know and i'll I'll be very excited when it's over but um and i don't want to. you know i mean i i i certainly know who i'm who i'm with but i'll just leave it at that you know but that, that took up a great amount of my time this week. This week, and then a lot of tutoring. I had some kids who were getting ready to take the ACT this morning. So it was a busy week of tutoring and watching political coverage on <laughs> MSNBC and uh, and the Bronte sisters.
0: I'm, I'm right there with you on the... the um the campaign there was, there was a a night last, last week where my husband was, was staying at a a place closer to LA because he had work and, uh, and so I was here by myself, and I'm like, perfect, I can chill, I can play some video games, I can just decompress, and then I got sucked into Facebook, and <laughs> I was just getting more and more depressed, but i couldn't I couldn't pull myself out. I was like I just had to click on the next story and the next story, and I think I've lived on five three eight for uh, the last month,
1: yes yes Absolutely. it's uh it's yeah same here i I just I have been inhaling, and it's like I can't look away, I keep on clicking on the next story, I keep on refreshing the page and like I'm gonna miss something. I mean, I can hardly wait to come home at the end of the the I had something every night this week, but I couldn't wait to just get home and and grab my computer yeah. and log on, even all the while knowing like this is actually this is, I don't think this is very good for me. This is not making me feel very good. And yet I can't look away, which is why the end of it can't come soon enough. But, um, what can I say? I'm, I'm riveted and, you know, if, uh, you know, if we weren't in another day, I mean, I could go on and on and on, but I won't on, on your podcast about what I think about all of this. Uh, and it is kind of depressing, but I think that if the result is what I hope it will be, then then we can start to move, you know, move forward and begin to do some much needed healing in this country. It has been it has been very dispiriting. But again, I'm sure that your listeners are they already know that they don't want to hear any more about it. So
0: <laughs> well, that 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 adds a good transition because um, we'll we'll move on to different events that are going on and one of them is my my second podcast that just launched uh, last week is up and that is State of the Geek. Cool. It is, it is a, a geeky, politically bent, uh, uh, podcast. And so episode zero is me and my co-hosts, Kelly Hightower, talking about our political leanings and the first presidential debate. And then the second, ep- the, the first official episode is, um, me, Kelly, and, uh, my friend Ray Vargas, who's been on this show multiple times talking about uh, geek culture and why why there is so much negativity in geek culture and what we as people can do to kind of combat that so if you want to talk about uh the po- politics or, or if you know listeners are interested in in hearing my views on politics in general uh episode zero and one of state of the geek is live on itunes stitcher google play and all other podcatchers out there so
1: That's awesome, Joe. I'm going to check those out. I would love to. That sounds right up my alley. I did remember one other geeky thing I did. I mean, it was technically last weekend, but I I think we'll allow it. I went to see a new play, a world premiere of a play called Blueberry Toast, and that was playing in Atwater Village at the Echo Theater. A very good friend of mine was understudying a role, and that was her weekend to go on, and the production was pretty terrific. It's a very interesting play. From a young 29-year-old playwright out of Yale, um, and I didn't realize it was the world premiere. I thought it was the West Coast premiere, but so that was great. And then the following night, my uh, my best friend and I went to the Groundlings to see. Uh, I have got a whole bunch of friends in the Sunday Company at Groundlings, and they're they're so incredibly talented. They just blow my mind. Uh, I I can't even. I can't even fathom how they come up with this new material week after week after mm-hmm. week. And, and just the sheer, just the, I mean, all of those lines, all of those, all of that blocking, they, they blow me away and I'm lucky to get to go and see a lot of those, a lot of those shows. My friends who are in the cast, they always hook us up with tickets and um, you know, Groundlings is not far away from where I live. So it's one of my, it's one of my favorite things to do on a Sunday night is, Go down, watch the you know Sunday Company show, laugh my head off, and then and then get home and put on the office and go to bed.
0: <laughs> it's been so long since I've gone out and seen uh, something like The Groundlings. I really really should make it make a, a point to do some something like that very soon.
1: Oh yeah, they're amazing. And you know another thing I want to plug is uh the improvised. It's called Improvised Shakespeare, and it's it's only one or two nights per month. At Largo, the company does not advertise other than to do uh, a, an email list that I'm on, um, but it's called the Improvised Shakespeare, and the and I've only seen it once, and it was one of the best things I've ever seen. The, the actors, all of whom are men, you know, in sort of the tradition of the original, you know, in Shakespeare's day, there mm-hmm. are about five or six men in this company, and the they get a title, you know, from the audience. The audience suggests a title, And that's all that they get. And then they create a Shakespeare play uh, just off of that title. And I was so blown away by how smart and witty and talented and quick these guys were. It's one of the greatest things I've ever seen. It's a really fun night out at the theater. Largo is such a cool place. The crowd is really cool. Tickets sell out fast. So, you know, you got to get on that email list, but they come like, one Monday and one Tuesday of every month. So. Wow.
0: I'll have to look into that because we, we have a, an improv team too, so that's, uh, that's something that I think they would absolutely love.
1: Oh, they would go crazy. I mean, these people, I, I just, I don't even, that level of intel, in, intellect, I mean, they're doing it in verse, and then they have these callbacks, and then they go on these, you know, these riffs and these extended metaphors, and then somehow all of these threads that they've introduced... That they've just created out of nothing, out of thin air. They somehow managed to to tie them up. I mean, they keep on doing callbacks to earlier jokes, or they keep on sort of like rounding out that thread that was introduced, you know, like twenty you know twenty minutes prior. I was just it left me it left me just dazzled, and I, I love that when you see something and you go and you just think talent. You know, the level of talent that people have is. It's, it's profound. it's humbling and you just want to be around those people I mean and congratulate them and tell them keep going. I mean I, I was smiling so hard my face hurt so
0: <laughs> that's awesome. That's very awesome. very cool. I'll have to get that I'll have to get a, a link to their to their site and see if I can get myself on that list. That's awesome. All right. Um, we're gonna just quickly go through the news because um, a lot of this is gaming stuff and since you're not a gamer, Um, I don't want to bore you with details, but, um, the big first, uh, the big news this week was Nintendo announced their newest console, which is the Nintendo Switch. And the idea behind this console is that it is a console you can take everywhere. So you can plug it into your regular TV and play just like you would any other, uh, classic console. But then you can turn it into a portable console like a uh, 3DS. And take it around with you. You can take it and connect it to other people's, so that there's team play. It it looks very much like it's going to revolutionize the way people play video games. And I I think it's such an amazing step forward that this small little um, console can not only hold um, the the processing power that it needs to do to play all these games, but also the screen and the you know you you. Basically, it has a TV screen built in. So, uh, to me, it's it's just absolutely phenomenal what they can do nowadays.
1: That sounds awesome. I mean, I I just I kind of wish I was into video games. Um, my good friend Ty is into video games, and I used to just love to go over his house and just watch him play because mm-hmm. I couldn't get over how beautiful the the graphics are. I mean, and how realistic and stuff. I grew up playing 8-bit Nintendo and. Um, you know, 16-bit Nintendo, Duck Hunt, and Mario, and Paperboy, and all those things, and um, once my sister won a Sega Game Gear, and I remember mastering Sonic the Hedgehog on that Sega (laughs) Game Gear, it was during the time when the Nancy Kerrigan, Tanya Harding scandal was happening, so it's all sort of mixed up in my mind, like I can just picture myself playing Sonic obsessively while watching talk show after talk show about Nancy Kerrigan and Tanya Harvey. It's uh, one of those funny memories, but
0: <laughs> it's, it's funny how our experiences kind of attach themselves to one another like that. It's kind
1: exactly, of exactly. Yes, yes, exactly. Like a song you'll, you know, you'll remember when you were really into this band, but it'll also remind you of whatever sort of drama was going on in your life at the time or whatever TV show you were obsessed with or you know, whatever singer you were totally into at the time. Yeah, it is funny how those kind of get conflated in our in our minds.
0: Absolutely. Now, did you get a chance to see the uh, new Wolverine trailer?
1: No, I haven't yet.
0: Yeah, so they're going to do Logan, which is the third, and uh, for Hugh Jackman, probably final Wolverine movie. Really? And yeah, yeah, he's retiring from, from playing Wolverine, and so they're introduced. In, in the comic books, uh, the character has... Um, has been killed off, and the current, um, character that's taken on the mantle of Wolverine is a character named X23. She's kind of a, a Wolverine clone. Really? And yeah, yeah, and so now Wolverine is, is, uh, a woman in the Marvel Universe, which is pretty, pretty kick ass. And so in this version, they're going to introduce us to her, and so it's gonna kind of be, I think, the passing of the, I guess passing of the claws <laughs> from. I love it. The Passing, yeah, from whom passing he,
1: of the boulding biceps.
0: Exactly. So uh, it's kind of neat. I hope it does take place in the future. So I'm not sure if they'll that will mean that they'll they'll bring X23 into the kind of newer movies that they've been creating. But uh, it, it looks interesting. I, I'm I've got that kind of nerd doubt <laughs> it's kind of like i'm not sure that i'm buying what you're selling on this one but i think the concept is definitely pretty cool
1: you should trademark nerd doubt i, I think that's a good one yeah that's
0: yeah. You're, you're absolutely right because i mean that's what it is we get very skeptical
1: absolutely do you know who's playing who's playing uh x23
0: you know it's the it's not a it's a young girl, so I'm not completely familiar with the actress. I don't know if she's been in anything else, but oh. I can certainly IMDB her real quick.
1: Oh, well, I can Google her after the fact. I just, you know, I love Hugh Jackman. I think he's, I think his career is, is one of the most interesting, one of the the best, you know, greatest acting careers anyone could ever wish for. And Absolutely. I just love his passion. You can tell that this is a guy who, it's like, for every huge, you know, big budget action movie he does, then he'll go and do a play or a musical or something completely different. I think he's really always pushing himself to test out different facets of his, of his you know, abilities. And um, I, I mean, and also, honestly, the way that he transforms his body over and over is, is kind of incredible to imagine the dedication and the discipline it takes to be able to do that. I did take my nephews to see the Wolverine movie that was set in like Japan. Do you know what I'm talking about?
0: Yes, yes.
1: And I, you know, I loved him. I liked it. It's not. I, I, didn't. I didn't love it, but I was really happy to be there with my little nephews, you know, who were visiting me in in LA. And uh, but I think Hugh Jackman is something we can all agree on. He's kind of like Ellen DeGeneres in that way. It's like who among us does not love Hugh Jackman? Come on.
0: Yeah, he's he's likable and talented. Like it, he's got the whole he's the whole package. <laughs> he is the whole package. He's got a sense of
1: humor about himself. He's you know self deprecating and quick and witty. He's he's so talented. And you know when he was in Boy from Oz, any any person who can do that Broadway schedule and keep showing up and not take days off, I mean those those are really amazing actors. I mean the proof is right there. Their their dedication, their discipline. And, um, you know, I mean, just the sort of the opposite of resting on one's laurels, I guess.
0: Mm-hmm. It looks like the actress's name is uh, Doris Morgado, Huh. And she has been in Two Guns, The Internship, Snitch, and Hall Pass. Those are her known for's on IMDb. So I okay. think that's the one playing um, the character that will ultimately become uh, X-23.
1: Very cool. Oh, hey, speaking of the news and in the, the geek news, did mm-hmm. you hear about this big kerfuffle surrounding Wonder Woman? Wonder Woman is being used as a, a symbol by the United Nations. She's becoming like, I heard it on NPR the other day, essentially the UN and Marvel are working together, or have been for a number of months, and they've just put out Wonder Woman as this sort of, I know I'm going to get the, the wording wrong, but essentially as sort of a symbol for women to be able to look to, it's like, sort of like an ambassador for, uh, I don't know, I, I just know that a lot of, a lot of women and a lot of women are kind of outraged because this is the first time that a woman has ever been uh, given this this title, and they're kind of horrified that they're using Wonder Woman as this title. And and it was a really interesting thing on NPR. They were talking about how they were working, the UN people who did choose choose Wonder Woman to be this symbol, because Wonder Woman is about to have a big anniversary, so there was sort right, of a right. synergy there. And they worked with the artists at Marvel to try to make the image that they're using of Wonder Woman Kind of a little bit less Barbie-esque and a little bit less, you know, fantasy woman. They put like a, I don't know, a cape over her to make like her boobs a little bit less prominent. It was really interesting and, um, I don't know. I, uh, that just kind of came to me while I was thinking about geeky news.
0: I saw I saw a little like, I I thought it was something else and so I didn't I didn't click on it but I'm going to have to go back and look at that and their concern is that it's a fictional
1: woman that's being put in this position
0: or her specifically
1: her specifically her specifically their concern is that the person that their concern is that Wonder Woman herself is is you know in is a character whose image is drawn you know to to be objectified by men and you know, it's interesting, Wonder Woman, they did a little bit of background about Wonder Woman's different, you know, her status as a feminist symbol and how that, you know, for a while she was sort of a feminist symbol. And then she was and then it kind of flipped. And a lot of people were like, but but really, she's not because look at the way that they've drawn her. And she's not, you know, we're all meant to look at her body and she's got the tiny little waist and, you know, all of the obvious stuff about She's sort of this fantasy pin-up looking woman and mm-hmm. you know a lot of feminist groups are just kind of like are you serious you know this is the first time you're ever going to assign a woman to this this role it's not a post i guess it's just like a role and they're like really wonder woman you know of all the people that it could be they think it's a kind of an insult to to women so
0: that's interesting cuz i mean well, it's interesting on a couple levels, mostly because uh, I kind of feel sorry for the character of Wonder Woman because she's she she has to play so many roles for so many people. I I think, you know, there there was a story about how at one point in her uh history uh, a writer took away her powers and made her just kind of this this kickass detective oh. and people were outraged because they're like, you know, we don't have any women superheroes and now you've taken one that we we love and you've taken her powers away and you know what gives and in his mind he was trying to show that she didn't need her powers to be amazing and it completely got flipped the other direction and you know he felt bad because he he, that was not his intention um and i think i think there are so few prominent women superheroes that she has to kind of be everything for everybody and yet can't be you know what i mean
1: I know. I think you just hit the nail right on the head. It's like the fact that she's the only one or was, I mean, not anymore. Obviously there are now other female superheroes now. I mean, Mm -hmm. and even novices in, in, you know, sort of fantasy that like I am, even I know about, you know, um, all of the ones in X-Men and everything like that. But yeah, you're right. It's like, she everyone kind of wants to own her and own what her what that symbol is and it just goes to show mean, it's like another argument for the need for a plurality of people to you know to have numerous women superheroes so that one does not have to do the job of all of them and be everything to everyone which she could never be anyway Absolutely. and you know even in this this uh news story that i was just mentioning you could tell that the the people who who chose her as this symbol, they're in they were well intentioned. They weren't in any way to them it was kind of a cool. It was a feminist statement. They thought that it was a great thing to do, um, you know, to give Wonder Woman that sort of position and connect her to the UN in this way and celebrate her. But because of the very you know because of her history. It's like the symbology of Wonder Woman is you can't divorce that from the character, you know what I mean? Like from the ever since she, you know, was a, was created a character and how she has meant different things to different generations of women, and so yeah, you're right. It's like she you gotta feel bad for for her. She can never just be her. Um, she's kind of wrapped up in this she's she's a symbol as well i mean not unlike hillary to tell you the truth
0: it's like i was just gonna say it she she you know in that way she really is a lot of women who have to deal with that (laughs) that they can't be everything to everybody but are expected to be yeah yeah and then just a a, a real quick just because i thought it was funny and and the politics right now is such a big thing is somebody did an anti-trump ad Which paints him as a terrible Overwatch player. Which Overwatch is a very big first person shooter game that came out from Blizzard, uh, last year. And, uh, it, it, it's just kind of a, for, for geeks, it is a easy way to relate to, to the person because, you know, everybody's played with or against that, that player who can't who can't play well with others. So I thought it was a very fitting analogy.
1: That is funny. I did see that headline on one of the, probably on Politico or one of the sites that I was refreshing like a maniac all week long. Yeah. But, uh, so I did see that headline. That's funny.
0: Yeah. So just, just a little political haha to, uh, to finish up our news segment. (laughs) Right. Well, we're going to transition into what we were here to talk about, though we we, we apparently have a lot of stuff that we could talk about, you and I. But um, I want to talk a little bit more about Alistair 1918, which is your feature film. And I believe your first feature film, correct?
1: Yes, it's my first film that I've ever made, uh, feature or short. I'm so lucky that the first film I got an opportunity to, to direct is a feature. Yeah. All right.
0: Well, I'll go ahead and, and introduce the premise to my listeners. I, I was lucky enough to be able to watch it last night with my husband, uh, and we thoroughly enjoyed it. G- give away what you're willing to give away in this.
1: Absolutely. So, Alistair 1918 is a story about a, a woman who's getting her master's in public health, and she's doing a project on homeless people. And right in the beginning of the film, uh, within the first five minutes of the film— She's in Griffith Park uh, hoping to interview homeless people, and she meets this man who is wearing a World War I soldier's uniform, and he's filthy dirty. And She she asks if she can interview him, and he agrees. And uh, during that interview, he reveals that he says he doesn't know how he got here. He claims that he was fighting in a war, World War I, and he got blown through a hole and landed on top of a of like a metal container in an alleyway off of Melrose Avenue and you know my character Poppy who's who's the student she doesn't believe that she doesn't believe that he's from 1918 because it's very implausible it's hard to believe but she's intrigued by him and she kind of can't let it go. She becomes a little, well, she becomes sort of obsessed with him and, uh, inserts herself into his life and tries to get him set up with a job and a place to live here in LA. But the conflict is though he's grateful for her help. He wants to go home. He doesn't Mm -hmm. want an apartment here in LA. He doesn't want a job here. He wants help getting back to 1918. So, The movie, the central theme of the movie is sort of how far are you willing to go for somebody if you believe in them, even if you even if you don't believe their story, you know, sort of the clash between faith and skepticism, um, being willing to to help somebody in their in their quest, even if the quest doesn't make sense to you. Mm -hmm. And um, basically belief and disbelief and faith and cynicism and each character in the film sort of falls on one side or the other of that of that uh, conflict.
0: Yeah, the, the thing that struck me right off the bat is how many different issues you're tackling here, because it does also, I feel, say a lot about the way we treat homeless people and homeless veterans in this country so you know that was the first thing that kind of drew me in and as you're talking about that kind of skepticism versus belief it there's there's just there's so many different layers to me in your film that it's it's what you we we spoke earlier about being able to go to a, a play and then speak about it intellectually afterwards and I I feel like you have a lot of nuggets there that you can just kind of really get into
1: Oh, thank you, Joe. That's that's really nice of you to say. Yeah, you're you're not the first person who has commented on the idea about how it makes them think about how we treat homeless people. And that is really exciting to me. Um, It certainly made me I mean, while we were filming it, it absolutely sort of changed and informed the way that I would that I would look at the homeless people who, you know, you see just living in L.A. day to day, driving, you know, to work. You, you do see, um, you know, you see people sleeping in tents under overpasses. You see people sitting on, on you know, bus stop benches talking to themselves or twitching. And it's, I, I would like to think that I never, that they were never invisible to me, but I can certainly say that they became more and more and more visible to me while we were shooting the movie and and after the movie. And now I, I just spend more time thinking about how they might have gotten there and where they go at night. Um, and for the, my, my actor, uh, the amazing Guy Bert Whistle, who's actually also the producer of the film, he playing that role and being in that costume and being in that disgusting makeup and looking so filthy dirty The looks that he would get, he got to experience sort of firsthand the way that looking like the way that homeless people are sort of invisible or either invisible or feared by other people. And there were certain shots that we were doing, whether in Griffith Park or at a gas station where where guy in character would have to be sitting on the ground or in one case lying on the ground. Uh, wearing that, that filthy outfit and the way that people treated him or didn't treat him as the case may be was sort of depressing and eye-opening. And he, he definitely got to experience, you know, in a way that I did not what it might be like for, for a person that doesn't have a home to go to at night. So it's, yeah, it does kind of go really deep in that, in that aspect of it.
0: Now, what inspired you originally to, to go on this journey? Was the story kind of something that you had in mind? Did somebody bring it to you? Where did, where did this all begin?
1: Actually, Guy brought me the story, and he offered me the job. And, and what uh, the thing that made me want to go on this journey was him. He's, he's very, very experienced, and he's produced a number of short films and films— uh, throughout his career. He's guy is one of these people who his follow through is like on another level. You always know that whatever he says he's going to do, he's going to do it and do it to the, to the ultimate degree. I knew that the film would be, um, well-produced. I knew that it would be finished. I knew that I wasn't going to get myself involved in a project that would not come to fruition. I trusted Guy and his sensibilities and his abilities to uh, to sort of finish the film, and it was just such an amazing opportunity. I mean, I can't even believe, even now, how lucky I was that I got the opportunity to direct a film. A lot of people, you know, they have to direct a number of shorts before they ever are, get the opportunity to direct a feature, and it was just, like, handed to me, which was so lucky. I... There was no way I could ever turn down that kind of an opportunity. And I also knew that if there was one film that would be a, a a great sort of place for me to learn how to become a filmmaker, this would be the one. Meaning that because the cast was so small and I knew, already knew a few of the cast members and we had such a tight-knit, close close-knit group... I knew that any learning curve that I was up against, which was a pretty steep learning curve would be mitigated by the level of comfort I felt with the collaborators I was working with. So uh, guy and gave me a lot of confidence knowing that he would, he would help me through all of my stumbling, you know, my stumbling blocks in this new, you know, in this new role and that the people that he, he hired to be our DP, To be, you know, the other actors who I who I didn't know before we started shooting, I knew that guy would really just choose really talented, talented people for, you know, for every role in the production, which he did. So all of that gave me like this great safety net. And I felt I felt comfortable, you know, going out on a limb and trying this new thing.
0: It's interesting that you said you went in with, you know, knowing a lot of these actors and already having kind of that familiarity because it really does come through. You you never for once don't believe that these people are friends and care about each other and are are concerned about each other's well-being. It's not – it doesn't feel forced at all. It feels very, very natural.
1: Oh, thank you, Joe. That's a great compliment. I, I really appreciate that. Yeah, I mean, that that is just – the, the actors are so talented. The guy, um, Tom Cano, the actor who plays Brandon, the sort of skeptic, um, mm-hmm. skeptical character in the film, he and I did not know before uh, we started this film, Guy knew Tom, and he pitched him as a great contender for the role of Brandon. So then we all met one night at Guy's house, and Tom and I just, we we became fast friends, and... We even did this really cool improv that night that guy actually recorded and I think he might release it someday on some kind of uh DVD extras or some kind of like behind the scenes thing on, on the Alistair nineteen eighteen website. And it was it really was one of those immediate things where we just got each other and we were uh very comfortable playing and doing this improv that where we kind of talked a little bit about we talked in character and from that improv began to build a sort of a loose history of when we met and then we filled in all of those blanks but the actors every actor in this film was so prepared they're just Mm -hmm. such professionals they did all of this backstory work um like I can't you know what what Tom and what Amy Mata brought to the film in terms of how well-rounded their characters were and all of the backstory work they'd done uh, they were just—they were always ready to go, you know. They would show up for the scene, knowing everything, knowing what was at stake, and and like any actor, you know, it's always good to give your character high stakes, and they do that naturally because they're really good actors. It's like, okay, if I can't achieve this objective, then what is going to happen to me? And they keep the stakes nice and high, which, um, you know. Even in a play that, in a movie, <laughs> a play, even in a mm-hmm. film that's really realistic, it's important to have high stakes. I mean, that creates the suspense. So, yeah, it was, we really did become, I mean, it's such a cliche, but we really did become like a family. And uh, it was a very special, it's like a really special project to be involved in. They're, they'll be my lifelong friends now.
0: That's awesome. Yeah, my my husband mentioned that uh, it also was a great advertisement for the public library system. <laughs> yes,
1: awesome.
0: <laughs> yeah, we we thought that it was it was just it was interesting to see I think there were so many perspectives in in this film that we're not used to in our daily lives having to deal with that it reminds us, you know, kind of how privileged we are and how um it, it's not as easy for people out there as sometimes we we think you know, we tend to forget that. So I think it was pretty cool that the light was shown on, on just kind of lots of different types of people from a lot of different backgrounds.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. I think everyone finds their, you know, makes their way in the world and finds what that thing is that they're going to create meaning, you know, in their lives. What, what will it be? And for some people it's family and for some people it's community or being of service. For some people it's, some people are workaholics and that's the thing that, that gives their life purpose and gives their life meaning. The character that I play in this movie, she's, you know, honestly, I think a little bit lost. I think she's, mm-hmm. she's looking for something to give, you know, create some meaning in her life. And she, she just sort of gloms onto this person and he becomes kind of her project for a while. But I do think that by the end, she is transformed, and I think that her experience of knowing Alistair is going to change the way that she moves through life. It's sort of like Alistair, well, Alistair has this really clear, clear goal to get mm-hmm. home to his wife. And he is singular in that goal. That is his focus, and every single thing he's doing is in an effort to achieve that goal. My character doesn't doesn't have that thing in her life, so she makes helping him her her goal but well i don't want to give anything away i just do think that she's transformed by that experience
0: yeah absolutely he provides you know a look into what she doesn't have and the character is already so charismatic that you completely understand why poppy is just like fascinated by him and his story you know whether she believes it especially at the beginning or not and uh you could definitely see that juxtaposition between the two characters
1: Absolutely. And yeah, he is so endearing. I mean, he's so smart. And from the minute she she meets him and starts interviewing him, I think she just can't look away. She's Mm -hmm. even though she doesn't believe that he's from 1918. It's like, who is this man? You know, this smart, smart, well spoken man with this British accent, who, you know, is here in it like he's, she can't contextualize him. She's, you know, he's like, She's really, I think, fascinated by figuring out who this guy is to, you know, the, she ends up sort of snooping into some of his private private uh, notes and poems to kind of try to get a clue as to who he is. But, um, yeah, I mean, he he that's one of the really smart things about the script is that guy created a character who is he's really uh, winning and smart and capable and he, he is who he is. I mean, he doesn't lie. He doesn't ever manipulate. He's very straightforward. He's sort of what you see is what you get. Um, except that, you know, (laughs) who he says he is, is like impossible to believe, you know, from world war one. And I got blown into, you know, into the, you know, 2014, which is when we, you know, shot most of the movie.
0: Now, what was for you the, the biggest challenge overall in, in this process?
1: I think the biggest challenge was um, wearing both the director hat and the actor hat. Mm-hmm. Um, as, as I've said, I never directed a film. So that was more than enough of a challenge to, to, you know, be tackling, but then acting as well. Um, it be it, the scenes where I was directing myself Uh, shooting scenes with other people it was hard because I I kept trying really hard to to just be in the moment as the actress and not be sort of watching it with the you know with the sort of distanced critical eye you know that you need when you're directing something but Mm -hmm. and I would try to turn it off but it wasn't it took a lot of it wouldn't always go all the way off so I think that there were certain times where I was in a scene where I was also watching the scene as you know not just being in it I was watching it too to make sure that the story was being told and so on and so forth like my some of my favorite days uh shooting were during scenes that I was not in because then <laughs> just I could just focus on directing which is even though film directing is something that was brand new to me directing is is a, you know something i feel very comfortable doing so it was great to just be able to show up and just focus on the other actors and what's the event is the story being told what are the beats of this scene you know making sure that we got enough coverage those were the moments that i could focus completely on one aspect of it it was it was a little bit challenging to go back and forth into the actor's mind Uh, which, you know, you kind of need to be more limited. You're only supposed to be thinking about what your character needs and what they're doing to achieve that. So that was one big challenge. And then another one, this is kind of a funny one, but continuity. We shot this film over a really long period of time, you know, relatively speaking. Mm -hmm. And so, and we used my old apartment uh, as Poppy's apartment. And there were... There were times where we were getting ready to shoot and it would be two days before we were getting ready to shoot. And that scene would be like on the same day as a day that we had shot two months ago. So I would look at the footage and I would be obsessing over how many dishes were in my sink. What were the books that were stacked on my nightstand so that the continuity in my apartment was, you know, so that we didn't have any obvious continuity mm-hmm. issues where I moved a plant or you know something like that and then you know your hair grows stuff like that so I'd be looking and thinking okay my hair looked like this I've got to get it to look like that but it's grown a little bit that was tricky continuity is no joke
0: yeah I was gonna say you know that's one of the things in the, the few student films that I've been part of it's like I I'm definitely a theater actor because I'm looking at all the all the moving parts that go into a film and I'm like I don't know how you guys keep track of all of this
1: Absolutely. I mean, even the idea of like the sun, right? Like, oh, the yeah. sun. Oh, my goodness gracious. We would be we'd be in Pasadena shooting a scene and I would say, OK, so in this scene, I want Dr. Sophie uh, Jansen. I want her to walk, you know, start here and say this line. And then I want her to be traveling and, you know, keep on uh, talking as she's as she's walking over here. And then my DP would say, yeah, but if she walks that way, then she's gonna, you know, she's gonna be too bright. And I would say, what do you mean? He'd say, well, the sun is like, you know, this, she's gonna have a shadow on her nose if she walks this way. I mean, everything was about shadows and the sun. And well, if she walks too far out of the shadow, then it's gonna blow out the exposure. And I was like, she's Louise. I mean, when you direct in a theater, you have stage lights. You never need to worry about the sun and yeah. shadows. I mean. You know, in a a theater, all it is is like, okay, don't wear a hat, because then you're casting a shadow on your face, or pull your hat up, or, you know, let's refocus that instrument, let's, you know, bump up the light on this actor, because he's six foot three, so we need to light him, you know, uh, I'm losing his face a little bit, and uh, yeah, the technical, the very technical aspects of filmmaking were, uh, I knew that they were going to be new to me, and I knew that I was going to be a real novice, but I was... There were times where I would think, Gosh, Almighty! Like, is this really all just about sun and shadows? Like, enough already.
0: One of the first uh, student films I was in. Uh, it was a student at USC from Canada, and he wanted to film at the beach, which any any starting film student will tell you that is not a controlled enough environment yeah. for you to be able to. But but to to make it worse, being from Canada, he didn't understand how California beaches work, and we don't get sun until noon. Yes. You know, and so, you know, my the the other actor and I were sitting in our car just reading our lines kind of with our windows open talking to each other through the window. And I said, "So, do you think he knows that we're we're going to have uh the marine layer until probably 11 or 12?" He goes, "Probably not, but hey, more time to work on our lines."
1: <laughs> oh my goodness. Yeah, shooting on the beach. Oh my god. We as you as you know because you watched the film, we shot on the beach too. And that was it was tricky. It was that day we had the beach and we had dogs. So mm-hmm, those two mm-hmm. things that were sort of difficult to, to work with, you know, the German shepherd dog, uh, in the movie. At one point I'm supposed to walk, my character was supposed to walk over to Alistair and sit down on a rock next to him and then talk to him. And the, the dog kept on like blocking me from the rock and I kept trying to walk around him and he would just kind of <laughs> do his own thing and get in the way and, it was it was crazy. And then, you know, your hair is blowing everywhere and it's windy and loud. And um, actually, when we arrived at the beach that day, we pulled into the parking lot. And 30 seconds later, four different uh, vans pulled into the parking lot and they all had the logo for the biggest loser on the side of the van. And we thought, oh, no, we're not. we, You know, they're shooting here today. We're not going to. There's going to be all these people in our shot or we're not going to be able to, you know, shoot here. They're going to kick us out. In the end, it all worked out. But it was one of those funny L.A. moments, you know, someplace and there's another film crew.
0: (laughs) It's crazy. So where where are we going to see this next? Where where what shows are you doing? What festivals are you guys going to be in?
1: Well, as you know, we had our uh, world premiere of Alistair 1918 at Comic-Con this past summer. And that was a dream come true. The whole experience couldn't have been any more amazing. And it was mm-hmm. very, very well received. And of any place we could have premiered, I, can, I can't I can imagine any place being better than Comic-Con. So right now we're just trying to promote the film and get as many people to rent it or, you know, and tell their friends about it as we possibly can. So the film, you can rent it or buy it at... Alistair1918.com and Guy actually just put the first 20 minutes of the film on that site for free uh, you know, so that people can go and click on it and watch the first 20 minutes and if they like it and they're intrigued then they can make the decision to rent the film. So uh, right now we're just trying very hard to get the word out and promote the film and get as many eyeballs on it as possible. We don't have as uh, aside from, you know, fun little sort of friends and family screenings in New York and in L.A., we are not uh, we don't have any festivals lined up right now. Um, it's just about trying to, you know, spread the gospel and, and get people watching it. And then, you know, my other stuff that's coming up, I've got the, the Bronte sisters play. Called Sisters 3. Again, it's not, it's just inspired by the Bronte Sisters. It's definitely set in the present and it's amazing. And that will be performing in mid-December at Versus Theater, but it's an Inkwell Theater production. We just do our shows at Versus, but it's uh, the Inkwell and tickets will go on sale in late November or very early December. And I think we're doing eight performances of that. Fairytale Theater, 18 and over. You can follow us on Twitter and on Facebook. And uh, we're gearing up for a production in New York, which I've been wanting to do this show in New York since we started doing it. And I that's a real dream come true. So I'm elated that that's, uh, that that's in the works. And like I said, our web series of Fairytale Theater is uh, getting closer and closer to to being ready so so look for that as well probably in probably in the late winter or the spring we'll we'll know exactly where that's going to be airing
0: that's awesome you have so much fun stuff going on like i'm excited for you and i want to get out to la more to see more of your stuff
1: thanks joe well you've got some amazing stuff going on too and uh i real please do keep me posted on these productions because i would i i love I love high schoolers. I, you know, I work with them on the ACT and the SAT, their level of enthusiasm, it kind of gets right at the heart of what this podcast is about. You know, I think high school, high schoolers, that's where like your geekiness really begins to come to new levels. You know, I just, I love working with these students because they're always interested in something, whether it's music or whether it's anime or whether it's books or whatever it is, fashion. I mean, who knows? they're all passionate about something and that period of time when you're 15 16 17 and you are really beginning to hone in on the things that you love the things that make you tick the things that get your heart beating fast that's i think it's one of the most exciting moments in a person's life you know where you're beginning to really kind of solidify your identity and try on different identities by kind of feeling what what makes What are your interests that are unique to you that even your best friend may not necessarily have? And I love that. So keep on doing the great work educating these students and empowering them and giving them tools to be complete theater artists and, you know, not just not just limited to, uh, you know, singing and and acting, which are great, but giving them all of these other tools as well. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate that so much.
0: (laughs) Uh, Do you have any shout outs? Anybody you'd like to say hello to out there?
1: I do. I'd love to give a great shout out to to the entire cast and crew of Alistair nineteen eighteen, in particular Guy Bert Whistle, Amy Mata, Tom Cano, and Devin Shearer, our brilliant, brilliant cinematographer. Um, you know, it, it has been this has been one of the most fun projects I've ever had the pleasure of working on. And thanks to people like you, Joe, it the fun gets to keep on, you know, the fun never stops. It's like I, I love this whole idea that when you make a film, you kind of get to keep on, it's like it's not over, you know, the film is in the can, obviously, but we get to do interviews like this, which I love doing and spreading the word and, um, you know, trying to get other people to see the film. So it's neat, you know, it's, a, it's different from a play, you know, a play when you have closing night, then it's really over. And mm-hmm. it, there's something ephemeral to working on a play, which is which is both beautiful and heartbreaking, but you kind of get used to it and then it's on to the next thing. But films are different. They kind of keep going or guy will text me and say, Hey, I've just posted some behind the scenes footage or we're going to do these interviews of the making of, and I'm like, Oh my God, amazing. So we get to kind of get back into it. I get to keep on talking about this movie, keep on thinking about it and keep on sort of creating content around the movie and, you know, about the making of the movie. So so that's been really cool. So yes, shout outs to to the Alistair people, and uh, if I may, I'd like to give a shout out to Hillary Clinton and just say you're almost there. <laughs> Keep fighting the fight.
0: Right there with you. <laughs> um, I'd like to give a quick shout out to uh, the guys at the Geek to Geek Network, um, Void, beige and Rob. Uh, I because I I finally caught up on all my podcasts. I have just been enjoying so much of the. Content that they've been putting out on their various shows, and and in particular, uh, Bij had a, uh, a episode of his Geek Fitness podcast that dealt with mental health. Really? And yeah, and anybody who is interested or or has any any connections to mental health, either you you have problems. Or or somebody you know is struggling. Uh, it, it was just a very good episode of kind of affirmation of dealing with people with uh, mental illness or or who suffer from mental illness. So I, I highly recommend anybody uh, listening go go listen to Geek, the Geek Fitness podcast and and listen to it's, it's a very very powerful and moving episode. So I'm gonna throw that out there for people.
1: Awesome. Hey, Joe. Are you a Neil Gaiman fan? Are you looking forward to American Gods?
0: I am. I I have not read a lot of his stuff, but anything that I have picked up of his, I've just absolutely loved, so I'm
1: really really looking forward to it. Yeah, I am too. I mean, that's I I also have not read a lot of his stuff, but I was I got to direct a a play for a a one-act uh for a, a science fiction play festival called SciFest in LA 2 years ago. And the play was based on a Neil Gaiman short story called The Case of 4 and 20 Blackbirds. And then a really amazing thing happened. Uh, He was in L.A. and uh, one of my actors, you know, tweeted, tweeted about the show and he came to see it. And he couldn't have been any nicer. And he hung out backstage and took pictures with everybody. And he was so lovely and very generous with his time. And so when we got to Comic Con with Alistair and I saw the whole booth for American Gods, which was a really impressive booth, I was like, "Oh, cool, Neil Gaiman!" Like it's kind of worlds colliding a little bit. So.
0: Yeah, I, I'm really looking forward to it. I started reading it when I, was, I think, when I was in college. Really? Yeah, and and for some, I'm I'm for I'm a terrible English teacher in this regard. I am awful at finishing books.
1: <laughs> oh, I
0: just can't do it. I, I get into them and I read them and I get distracted and start reading something else and never go back to it. Or if I do go back to it, I don't remember. So I have to start it over again. And, uh, and so it's one of those where I was loving it and it was very intriguing and then I just never finished it. So this is going to be my, my way of kind of getting back to that.
1: There you go. That's a good idea.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. I'm
1: excited. I see Kristen Chenoweth is in the cast and Pablo is in the cast. And, uh, I think it's going to be pretty, pretty cool when that TV show comes out and, um, I first heard of Neil Gaiman I used to be a huge I still am a Tori Amos fan but when I was a teenager man oh man boy did I love me some Tori Amos and she, she name checks uh, Neil Gaiman in a couple of her songs and I was like who's that and that's how I first heard of him
0: yeah he's pretty phenomenal coming up next week we're going to be talking to T. Morris and Pip Ballantyne they're going to return to the podcast and talk about their book The Curse of the Silver Pharaoh it's always a fun time to have them on so we're looking forward to that all the music in this episode is by Ben Sound is being used under a Creative Commons license. You can find more music by Ben Sound at BenSound.com. You can currently find us at Geektitude.com as well as on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and most other podcatchers out there. Please leave us a review and spread the word. If you'd like to contact me, you can send me an email at JoeHogan at Geektitude.com. You can also follow the show on Twitter at Geektitude or me personally at Epic Grays. Uh where can we find you, Annie?
1: You can find me on Twitter at, at Annie McVeigh. Uh McVeigh is spelled M C V E Y. You can find me on Facebook and um and Alistair all things Alistair nineteen eighteen can be found at Alistair1918.com and Fairy Tale Theater eighteen and over. Uh we're on Twitter and we're on Facebook, so you can find us there. I think that's uh, I think that's all of them.
0: Very good. Well, we'll put those in the show notes for you. So if anybody needs to, to click through, they'll be there for them. Thank you. Absolutely. Well, thank you for spending some time with us this
1: morning. Oh, Joe, the pleasure was mine. Thanks a million. This is really fun.
0: Absolutely. It was great to have you on. And for all of you listening out there, remember this week, keep it geek.